Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector. Recording on the morning of Monday, January 11th, uh, after what was an absolutely unbelievable week in the United States. Um, last Wednesday, January 6th, on the day, what should have been just a, a formality, uh, the congressional certification of the presidential election of Joe Biden, something that happens every four years without any drama at all, um, resulted in a riot in which uh, thousands of Donald Trump supporters stormed the Capitol. And uh, as a result of it, five people are dead, including the Capitol police officer. They broke down doors, they uh, smashed windows, they stole property. Um, there were chants of hang Mike Pence because Donald Trump had convinced them that Mike Pence is, uh, was, uh, had the power to overturn the election results. And if he didn't do that, he was being disloyal. Um, and so uh, it, it, part of that, as a result, and, and in the aftermath of that, uh, there have been calls uh, for Donald Trump's impeachment. Uh, we've had uh, Trump being banned uh, permanently from his favorite means of communication, which is uh, Twitter. And um, all of this uh, was so outrageous and unbelievable that we forgot what would, in an ordinary week, would have been probably the biggest story of the week, which was the fact that in Georgia, you had two runoff elections in which uh, Democrats were able to flip both of those seats, uh, including the election of uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock, the first African-American senator from Georgia ever, and uh, we will now have a, a Democratic majority in the Senate. Uh, but it was almost, that story almost got forgotten because of, of everything that ensued. And uh, so we're, we're fortunate that we have someone who can hopefully help us make sense of what happened and where we go from here. We're joined today by uh, U.S. Representative Joaquin Castro, a Democrat from San Antonio. He's beginning his fifth term in the U.S. House. And uh, Representative Castro, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Um, I, I wanted to start just by giving uh, listeners a sense of, you know, where you were and what happened at that moment. I think it was maybe around two o'clock in the afternoon on Wednesday when you started to have these uh, rioters storming the Capitol um, and the Capitol went into lockdown mode. Were you on the floor? Were you in your office? Where, what, how did you first become aware of what was going on? I was in my office, actually, and uh, we had been asked, most of us, to remain in our offices until uh, we were supposed to vote on accepting, accepting the results of the Electoral College uh, in each of the states. And so, uh, yeah, I had not made it over to the floor yet. Um, because of COVID-19 COVID protocols, they wanted most people to stay in their offices until we voted. And before we could go take the first vote, that's when uh, the Capitol was stormed and people made their way in. And you're right, it was after lunch because I remember uh, I got into the office somewhere around 11 a.m. because we weren't going to start until about noon, I think, somewhere around there uh, or one o'clock. And uh, I went and got lunch probably around 1230. And when I was coming back to my office in the tunnels, um, the Capitol Police officers were very getting very frantic at that point and were yelling at people to go into their offices and to stay in lockdown and shelter in place. 
And they almost kept me from going to the Rayburn building because I was on my way back to my office. But I told them and my office is in the Rayburn building. Yeah. You know, I'm just going upstairs to my office. And, uh, you know, fortunately for, I guess, you know, for myself and my staff, uh, I'm in a part of the Capitol complex in the Rayburn building on the second floor. That's about as far away as you can get mm -hmm. from what was going on at the Capitol steps. Uh, that said, the whole area was really was really in a very tense very tense situation. Um, one of my colleagues uh, from Illinois who had gotten evacuated from his office in the Cannon building because mm -hmm. there were folks that had made it into that building, I believe, uh, he came over to my office and he and his staff were there for several hours because they couldn't go back to the Cannon building. Uh, so, you know, and I didn't realize until later on just how, how deadly it could have been. I mean, as it is, you have five people that lost their lives. Um, and another Capitol Police officer that was announced yesterday that took his own life, but much of it believed um, inspired because of what happened uh, on that day. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the, the uh, and primary enablers of President Trump uh, over the past two months, and this is really what we saw was the culmination of two months and, and longer because the president had been saying basically before the election even was, uh, before election day that the election was going to be rigged the only way he'd lose is if he was cheated out of it he continued to to uh, fight uh in a variety of ways legally and 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 failing to to really find to prove that there was any uh widespread voter fraud but kept pushing this argument he had a rally that morning he basically encouraged the uh the riders to go marching to the capitol but one of the it would not have been as effective his his uh strategy if he hadn't had all these enablers uh, in Congress, and you know, one of the main ones was was Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, who had volunteered to argue before the Supreme Court. Uh, what was I think a ridiculous lawsuit from Attorney General Ken Paxton? It didn't didn't go that far, but he offered to do that. Um, and then he uh, you know he he pushed this idea of an election commission and let's let's not certify the vote. Let's have this election commission. Uh, you know, he's citing some ridiculous 1876. Uh, Precedent, which was you know dealt with reconstruction and so on. You have called for uh, Senator Cruz to resign, and if you could just talk a little bit about you know how uh, how responsible you hold him for, for for you know this this horrifying thing that we saw happen last week. Well, and well, I think writing your comments, I mean, this had been an argument that was being fomented for months, if not years by Donald Trump and others, this idea that Democrats always steal elections and they're going to steal the presidential election from Donald Trump, uh, even though his own FBI, his own government, and uh, including a lot of Republican governors and state legislatures, were trying to make sure that this was the most secure election that we could ever have, particularly on the heels of what happened in 2016 with uh, Russia uh, interfering in our 2016 election. So despite all that, uh, Donald Trump, chief among everyone, but then you had people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri and others who were egging this whole thing on. And by the end, if you notice with Ted Cruz, his argument was not that there was voter fraud. His argument was that there are so many people who believe that there was voter fraud, yeah. voter fraud that we got to stop this thing from being certified. Yes. And it's so hypocritical and so disingenuous because Ted Cruz is a very intelligent man and he knew exactly what he was doing. 
He knew that there was no evidence and he still tried to mess with a process uh, where, you know, like you said, you know, every four years this happens and it's usually a routine thing. I mean, that vote, that whole process should take about an hour in a regular, in a regular time. Uh, and yet they somehow uh, turned it into, uh, as they said, some kind of theft of a democratic election. And yeah, so I put a, I put a lot of responsibility on him. And I think that I was one of the first folks that said that he should resign. And now I know some of the newspapers have said that he should either resign or be expelled, yeah. uh, including some of his own colleagues in the U.S. Senate. But remember, before there was Donald Trump, before Donald Trump came along, Ted Cruz was the, the hard right uh, part of the Republican Party. And he just kind of lost out, I think, because of Donald Trump's persona and so forth and the brand that he'd built over the years. Um, but Ted Cruz finished second in that presidential race, uh, essentially second in that presidential race in 2016. So I think he was doing it just solely out of political ambition, because that's what he believed he had to do to win over the base for the 2024 nomination. And he's willing to do anything. It doesn't matter how it hurts the country, how it hurts the people of Texas, Americans, you know, who it divides. He was willing to do it. And I think he should pay a price for that. You know, one of the uh, I was thinking about, uh, you know, we've seen so much video of people and the kind of proudly standing in, you know, in front of the Capitol or talking about the storming of the Capitol. Some of them treating it as always kind of some kind of cute, funny thing. And some of them thinking that this, this was some proud, righteous thing. And, you know, in the aftermath of the, the 9-11 attacks in 2001, we heard a lot about, you know, people being radicalized by propaganda. We heard, later heard the same thing about, you know, with regard to, to with ISIS. Um, and I, when you see the way some of these people talked um, and certainly the way they behaved, uh, I wonder if, if you look and think that we've got that one of the issues we've got in this country is that, that we've had people who have just been radicalized by propaganda. And it doesn't even seem completely ideological. I mean, they were talking about hang Mike Pence. Mike Pence probably would be regarded as more of a conservative than Donald Trump, but it's now more about right. conspiracy mongering and things like that. I mean, how do we deal with this issue? I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a, a great question and a tough question because the country has now had four or five years of a steady diet of Donald Trump's uh, conspiracy theories his, his racism that animates a lot of this, uh, you know, I think racism in the United States is like psoriasis. Uh, it goes away and you think that it's not there and then it takes somebody to come scratch it and all of a sudden it becomes the most prominent thing around. And that's what just happened over the last four years with Donald Trump. Um, is that a lot of this stuff goes latent for periods of time and then somebody comes like Donald Trump and reanimates it and this is where we are. And then it, it can spin off into other things as well, like you see with just outright conspiracy theories where people are just denying reality. I mean, you listen to some of the folks and some of them just seem completely detached from reality, uh, yet they're fully convinced in, in their beliefs. And so, you know, in terms of how you get past this, I think to get past it, you have to hold people accountable. You have to hold the president accountable. Uh, I'm going to go to Washington this week to vote to impeach Donald Trump again uh, for the second time. I wish that Mike Pence would and the cabinet would remove him from office under the 25th Amendment. Uh, I mean, for God's sakes, 
you know, he sent a mob over there that was saying they were going to hang the vice president. He hasn't spoken to the vice president since then. Yeah. Uh, and and then hold the enablers accountable as well. Uh, and the people who were who were rioting in the Capitol, you know, who, who engaged in insurrection in the United States Capitol. But it is a larger challenge than that. Right. Because these are also these are American citizens. These are you're not going to put all of those people in jail. Right. So you've got to figure out a way eventually to hold people accountable, but also to start to move away from this this ideology, this conspiracy theory and start to come together again. If you could talk a little bit about you mentioned the the, the impeachment process, and I think certainly uh, Donald Trump's behavior uh, over the past couple of months, um, you can certainly make a strong case that this is justified. And I mean, we haven't really talked about uh, another big story that's almost been forgotten, which was only uh, about a week and a half ago that Donald Trump uh, got the Secretary of State of Georgia on the phone and was basically telling him, "Find me eleven thousand seven hundred eighty votes to flip." an election that had already been certified in the state of Georgia. So that, I think, I think there was already some talk about impeachment after just after that, uh, that call. But so I think certainly that you can make a, a good case that this is justified. Um, but I, I was curious to get your take on just the practical benefits of this, because obviously Donald Trump's only got a little more than a week in office. Mitch McConnell, uh, the, the, uh, the Senate majority leader, soon to be minority leader, has said that they're not, the Senate wouldn't take this up until after January 20th. So he wouldn't be in office anymore. From your perspective, what is the what are the primary benefits of going forward with an impeachment process? A few things. Uh, in terms of the practicality, we also have the option of impeaching him and make sure making sure that he cannot run for president again or for office again, which is available uh, in the impeachment process. But also, I think for for Americans, uh, and for the for the elected official class, remember, it wasn't just Donald Trump. It was others who also peddled this stuff and who were hoping to benefit from it. People have to know that there are consequences to that kind of uh, reckless, uh, detached from reality behavior that incites a riot and an insurrection against the United States government. So if you do nothing, then there's this perception that, well, there wasn't any there wasn't any price to pay for what we did, so maybe we'll try it again. Uh, and then for the United States, as it relates to the world, the United States has been the most successful democracy in the world and the most powerful and prosperous country in the world for a long time now. And because of that, we have been able to go out into the world and convince different countries to move closer to democracies where they aren't democracies, to follow the rule of law, and to treat their people generally with respect. And so I think the world is watching now and believing that this is a test for American democracy, whether America actually works the way its leaders have been saying it works for generations now. And if there's no response at all, then when you go next time to a nation in anywhere around the world, could be Europe, it could be Africa or Latin America or Asia, uh, a country that's having problems with its own democracy, where the rule of law is under assault, and America tries to, you know, leverage its power to get that country to do the right thing and its leaders to do the right thing, they can point to you as an example and say, you and your own country, you know, when, the, when, when, when it came down to it, you didn't do the right thing. Uh, you didn't, uh, there were no consequences for an insurrection. And so for various reasons, it's important. 
Um, you, you mentioned last week also uh, that you are uh, preparing legislation which would uh, prevent Donald Trump's name from being put on any federal building or federal property going forward. And I think we all know that, you know, one of the one of the things that happens often with presidencies is that there's this uh, there's there's the, the campaign to get that person elected. And then after they're gone, there's kind of this other campaign to sort of build up their legacy and or maybe rewrite history a little bit. And so I'm, is that is that where you're coming from? The, the idea that you just do not want to see people trying to sort of uh, reclaim or, or rehabilitate his his image after the fact. Yeah, Donald Trump has been the most dangerous president, I think it's safe to say, in American history. And more immediately, he inspired uh, a mob, uh, an insurrection that was essentially a failed coup. And so and by the way, because of that, uh, six people have now died and a lot of federal property was damaged. So I don't believe that he's deserving of having his name on any federal building or property, but also he has become a symbol to those on the far right. And, uh, you know, a lot of the what I said in my statement was that I don't want Donald Trump to become the Confederate hero or symbol of a future generation. Yeah. And uh, many of those Confederate uh, folks didn't have na things named after them until decades after the Civil War. They were not honored in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And so if it's up to me and I think a lot of others in the Congress, we don't want to leave open that possibility for folks 40 or 50 years from now so that 60 or 70 years from now, you have to go try to erase it. Yeah. He, the, the, the White House has, has announced that uh, Trump is going to visit uh, the Rio Grande Valley uh, uh, Tuesday, uh, a day from today. And... Um, He's apparently going to go to Alamo and he's going to be touting the construction of the, the border wall. Um, do you have any concerns? Just, I mean, this is a really combustible time. This is really his, I think, his first major public appearance uh, since, uh, since what happened last Wednesday. Um, are you worried about just the, 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 what could happen down there uh, with, with Trump visiting? At this point, the president is um, a, a dangerous person. Um, he has inspired dangerous acts. And so the whole situation, as you mentioned, is combustible. I think it's better that he doesn't come to Texas. Uh, I think everybody by now knows his efforts on the border wall. Um, nobody needs a reminder of that. But also, more practically, um, COVID-19 is running rampant in Texas and, and in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, and so the idea that you're going to have, you know, crowds of people over there who may try to, to see the president or even welcome the president because he does still have a core of supporters, even though I believe it shrunk over the past week, um, you know, it, it's going to be a super spreader event again. And we just don't need that in the Rio Grande Valley or in Texas. Congressman, I wanted to ask about, uh, you know, apart from the impeachment uh, vote itself, apart from the legislation that you're proposing, you know, there seems to be sort of like this growing movement within within, uh, you know, the Democratic Party to to push for, you know, accountability uh, that goes further than that. You know, people have talked about, you know, investigating Trump, his family, top aides, uh, 
you know, beyond the scope of this week's events, you know, looking at sort of, you know, alleged tax fraud, you know, any pressure he put on election officials in Georgia, you know, using federal offices for political activity, um, that sort of thing. I mean, where do you kind of stand on that? Do you, do you, do you think it's necessary for, for Congress to, to go even further than impeachment and to, to sort of start probes into these other issues, even after he's gone? Where there is a serious and credible evidence that a crime may have been committed, uh, I think that should continue to be investigated. Uh, and for the purposes in Congress, you've got a lot of investigations that aren't criminal investigations, uh, but we're trying to figure out, okay, what went wrong and what do we need to do to change that in terms of policies, procedures, laws? So those investigations should continue for that purpose. But yeah, I think that if the New York State Attorney General, for example, finds that a President Trump or any of his family members may have committed a crime, I absolutely think those things should be investigated. Because again, you need to respect the rule of law. And that means that nobody is above the law. Uh, and I have watched in amazement some of the allegations that have come out over the years. I'll just give you a quick example. And it's a relatively minor one with respect to everything that's gone on. But the allegation that the president spent redirected a lot of the money that he raised for charity for personal and business use. Uh, there's people that are that are tried and prosecuted for that stuff all the time. I mean, all the time. If you were a regular, even if you were a regular business person, and really this has nothing to do with race, regardless of your color, if you're a white business guy, okay, and you do that somewhere, you're probably going to get prosecuted if people know about that, if the federal government knows about it. And yet this guy somehow, even on that, that's just one little example, has skated on all of it. So yeah, yeah, I think that, you know, if a cat has nine lives, this guy's had 18, you know. But should, should it be a should it be a key focus of, of Congress going into this next term? Well, we've got the committees that will be responsible for it. Chiefly, the the um, Oversight and Government Reform Committee, I imagine, will have a heavy role in that. And then, you know, some of the other committees will look at what's going on. Like I'm on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So what's going on in the State Department? Uh, the Intelligence Committee, what's going on in the intelligence agencies. Uh, but look, the biggest focus for Joe Biden, uh, once we're able to get through this moment where we're in, where we just had an attempted coup in the country, is combating COVID-19, expanding the number of vaccinations, uh, and getting them out to everybody quicker, and helping the economy bounce back from COVID-19. I think we just had another 140,000 job loss that was reported for December. You know, so a lot of San Antonio businesses and area businesses have been hit very hard. Have Some of them have been closed for months and months, and I don't know that they're ever coming back. Uh, and so that's going to be an intense focus for this new Congress. But look, I mean, we can't ignore what this president has just done. Uh, we we got to make sure that there's consequences for that. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of the two Georgia runoffs? Uh, I mean, with with uh, Kamala Harris as vice president, that she would basically be the deciding vote um, in the Senate. Uh, do you think this is going to have a, a what kind of impact do you think this is going to have as far as Joe, Joe Biden's ability to get his legislative program through? Yeah, I mean, look, the Democrats winning those two Georgia Senate seats is historic. Um, uh, obviously, I'm very elated because I've always served uh, either in the deep minority party for 16 years or in this last term was in the majority, but still 
in divided government. Uh, so yeah, it'll give it'll give Democrats a chance to really get through um, important pieces of our agenda that we've been working on for a long time. And and things that are not, you know, look, there's some things that people consider part of the Democratic agenda, part of the Republican agenda. Then there are things like infrastructure, for example, that both parties, I think, can agree on. So you'll see us work on a lot of the Democratic issues like immigration that we've worked on for a long time and get that through. But then also things like infrastructure and other things that are considered more nonpartisan. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you a little bit about foreign policy. You've, you've, you've played uh, gotten really involved in foreign policy issues, and you ran recently for a, for Foreign Affairs Committee chair. And one of the things you said uh, recently, or that you talked about, uh, which really intrigued me, was the idea that we should sort of have a, a, a sort of a broader scope when we look at foreign affairs. That you know, we, there's been a tendency in recent American history that everything is strategic. Is this person a strategic ally of ours, or that kind of thing? And you were talking about issues like uh, climate change and and the you know the rights of women in, in different countries and that we need to really sort of approach um, our foreign policy through through a different lens than we've been looking to. Could you talk a little bit about this? Because I think this is something that has been kind of a long time coming uh, for American foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, we have confined many of the issues that you mentioned and that I spoke about over the last several months to my colleagues, the rights of women, the rights of indigenous people, climate change, climate refugees, uh, we've confined these mostly to, to domestic political conversations and how we deal with them as domestic issues. Uh, but we haven't taken a look at them more broadly through a foreign policy lens. And by that, I mean the foreign policy committees in the Senate and in the House have not treated them historically as foreign policy issues. Uh, and you take the case of, of climate change, that very much is a foreign policy uh, right now, there's 80 million people around the world who are displaced from their homes. Some of those are climate refugees. And by all scientific indications, that's only going to get worse in the coming years. And so what is our policy? What do we do about that? How do we approach other nations and work with them where we can? Uh, and, and also, what does it mean for our refugee and asylum laws? Uh, you know, and so that's what I've been advocating is that we take a look at these things uh, otherwise, what the Congress does when we don't do that in Congress, you abdicate that responsibility in that role only to the executive branch and the executive branch handles it the way they will. And my argument was, look, I mean, this to me is like a whole of government approach, right? It's, it's, it's not just the executive branch, but it's also the legislative branch that should be looking at these issues as foreign policy issues. And thankfully, the new chairman, Gregory Meeks of New York, uh, we just had our first meeting within the last week. Uh, has said that he's committed to looking at the more of these issues in that way. Well, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, Representative Castro, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to, to visit with us and, uh, and good luck with everything. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Right. And uh, we're going to, on that note, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, take care of yourselves and, and uh, we'll be back next week. Bye.